Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode of the show, I'm very excited to have Michael Friendly and Howard Weiner join me. Michael and Howard are legends in the field, and they have a new book on the history of data visualization. Really interesting book, especially if you've seen a lot of the discussion on Twitter about historical data visualizations. They give you a more thorough treatment than you're going to get on Twitter. So we talk about how they work together. We talk about their favorite visualizations. We talk about their favorite eras of historical data visualization. Really fun conversation. I hope you'll enjoy it. So take a listen to this week's episode of the Policy Viz podcast with Michael Friendly and Howard Weiner. Michael Friendly, Howard Weiner, good afternoon. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to see you. How are you both? I'm great, as well as could be expected. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm very excited about your book, History of Data Visualization and Graphic Communication. If folks haven't seen it, they will check it out by the end of this particular podcast episode, which is going to be great. I've got a whole set of questions for you, um, and I thought we would start by talking about the book itself and what your favorite parts are. The book really starts at the beginning of time of how, you know, people were drawing on cave walls and using sticks to communicate data and understand the world around them all the way to the the modern era. And I think we'll start with maybe Michael with you, like which era did you find the most interesting? Which was the most enthralling for you to both research and write about? Um, Thanks for having us, John. Let me start by saying this is sort of like the scene in The Crown where Prince Philip asks the queen, which is her favorite child? Um, It's unanswerable, but I I love all of these ages. But let me say, first of all, that the parsing of history into themes that have a particular order is one of the most important features of our book. Yet, I have to confess, I do have a favorite child, and my sympathies are most with the golden age of statistical graphics. Mm -hmm. In a sense, this was the culmination of what had been building for over 200 years, the development of wide sources of data, go back to the early 1800s, theory of measurement and statistics, that goes back to the early 1600s with mapping the heavens and navigation at sea, technology, the ability to reproduce exquisite graphs in full color was mm-hmm. something that came into four in the period from 1850 to 1900. In this period, there's also some of my favorite heroes in this history, Charles Joseph Menard, Andre Michel Gary, John Snow, Florence Nightingale, Francis Galton. Each of these contributed something that was new and magical in the representation of facts, important statistical and scientific discoveries. But the main thing that I love most about the golden age is this incredibly impressive collection of the Album de Statistique Graphique, published in France from 1877 to 1899, the most incredibly exquisite sampler of all known graphic forms and inventing new graphic forms as they went along. Their their topics were sort of mundane. How is our trade in wine and cotton doing with the rest of Europe? Where should we build a railroad? But they used exquisite graphs to show 
things in a way that captured the eye and captured the imagination. I spent five years trying to track down the complete set of the album de Statistique Graphique with Howard and a bunch of other colleagues. We purchased the entire set. We own them each individually, but now David Rumsey has acquired a new set and made them all available on his website in full high resolution. So when you think about organizing this long history, you mentioned the distinction between chronology and theme. And I wonder if you could talk about that a, a little bit more for folks who may not be as familiar with the history of data visualization stretching all the way back. Okay, let me go on that. So when I was first cataloging and organizing the material in my Milestones project, it struck me that each of the periods of time, 1600s, 1700s, you know, roughly in, in centuries, had a coherent theme that went across not only the kinds of graphs that were produced or maps that were produced, but in terms of the important problems of the age. So the 1600s, I call the period of measurement and theory. This was the time that European countries were competing for markets, for discoveries of new territory, for what would become their colonies and sources of great wealth. Well, this took the combination of scientific measurement and recording of information about past voyages. Um, Edmund Haley made an incredible isogon map of declination of the magnetic compass at sea. Like if your compass is drifting, you're going to get lost really soon. <laughs> he did this from remarkably few observations, right. but that was an important contribution both to navigation and to graphical display using interpolated curves on a map from very little data. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a couple of times the interplay between statistics and graphical methods. And I'm wondering, and I'll turn this over to Howard, uh, I'm wondering whether you think either could have existed without the other. No. <laughs> <laughs> what more? May, I mean, maybe. I mean, maybe there's no more to say, but <laughs> um, have, have yeah, maybe ever, some more. Yeah. Have you ever testified in court? The instructions you get from a lawyer is that the answers are yes, no, I don't know, <laughs> and blue. <laughs> what is why blue? What is what is if blue? The question was if the question was what color car was they driving? <laughs> Just say uh, blue. The answer is not a, a blue '57 Chevy. It's Just blue. Just blue. Okay. Anyway, well, I, yeah. I think yeah. um, the story begins in the contrast between Plato and Aristotle, uh, because uh, the, it's, the, it's the, the, the idea of rationalism versus empiricism. And empiricism, uh, with, without the idea of empiricism, there's no need to have data. If evidence doesn't matter, then data doesn't matter. And if there's no data, there's no graphics. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you couldn't have graphics unless you had a, a belief that data mattered. And in particular, if you wanted to make claims, uh, you needed evidence to support those claims. Uh, unfortunately, when Aristotle was making his point about evidence, uh, he had Alexander the Great backing him up. And so he didn't screw around with, with Aristotle because you had to deal with Alex. 
Uh, but it died out. It, you know, at the end of the golden age of Greece, that died out, and it didn't come back again uh, until Bacon in in the 15th century, and then the other Bacon a little later. But it really, empiricism didn't really get rolling until the British empiricists, and particularly Hume. And it was only when the idea that if you wanted to learn something, you needed to have data, you had to have evidence, uh, and you couldn't just guess. And that's not fully absorbed now either. And you have lots mm -hmm. of arguments being made in the absence of, of data or in conflict of, of data. Right. Uh, and that's going on and on now, you know, to this day. But somewhere around the 18th century, where the British empiricists got rolling, this is certainly only in the West, uh, people started gathering more data. And whether it was health data or crime data or weather data, uh, and somewhere along the line, uh, they discovered that the best way to see what was going on is literally to see what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and that brings in one of the heroes that, that Michael didn't mention, that's William Playfair, who was mm -hmm. a, uh, a, an 18th century scoundrel. But he was the one that invented most graphs. Right, uh, right. You know, of course, there were maps and things like that. Uh, but that's, that's really the, everything hangs on uh, the philosophical basis of empiricism. Without that, right. you haven't got anything. right. So you started with Plato and Aristotle. So we're zipping forward now to, to the last, say, 30, 40 years. And I'm curious, um, because these two things are so intertwined, why do you think folks in math, statistically data-dense fields like economics and maybe sociology and statistics and mathematics, why are their visualizations just like often so bad? Because, uh, could I blue, respond to that? Blue. <laughs> you, you know, instruction can help cure ignorance, but not mm -hmm. stupidity. Uh, and and consequently, people are drawn to what's flashy mm. uh, rather than what works. Yeah, and to determine what works requires work. Uh, running little shoebox experiments, and, and you ask not which graph do you like better, but uh, which way is the wind blowing, and and mm -hmm. where did the storm come from? Michael, well, you you're you're chomping at the bit. You go. <laughs> um, well, let me put it in a, in a wider context. I think of statistics and the development of statistical theory as the glue that binds data to discovery and persuasion. So the very idea of taking the average, this was revolutionary in days when different observers were recording the transit of Venus and using that to calculate the shape of the Earth. Well, you had three or four different people making the same measurement. Mm -hmm. But they differed. The idea that you could take the average, and that would be a meaningful thing, rather than taking the one most trusted or the observer who is most trusted by the royal astronomer. Mm. What graphs did in this history of combining statistics with data and reasoning is it allowed people to see the patterns, mm. the trends, what stood out as an anomaly? 
it's this confluence of data, statistics, theory, and graphics mm -hmm. that I think is so compelling. Yeah. Now, Howard, you, you mentioned a few moments ago that people see things that look kind of showy, they look kind of, they think it looks kind of neat, and so that's what they create. I want to just read one of my favorite sentences from the book. So in the, in the last chapter, you both write, visual displays of empirical information are too often thought to be just compact summaries that at their best can clarify a muddled situation. This is partially true as far as it goes, but it omits the magic. And I wanted to get your sense of, of the magic. Do you get a sense that, you know, there are some folks in the field that are very dogmatic about it. you never, ever, ever, ever make a pie chart. You never use anything that's circular. It should be bar charts and line charts. And, you know, there's lots of phrases and terms that we could reference and use. But do you feel that that removes some of the magic from the field? Well, the magic comes from what data it is that you're showing. There was some guy who mimicked uh, Minar's plot of Napoleon's march. You know, mm -hmm. one of the one of the most wonderful plots that's ever been made. Uh, and he he had some he had data about uh, AOL stock prices that he was showing. It yeah. wasn't all that interesting. If you don't have interesting data, you don't have interesting graphs. Mm -hmm. uh, now we omitted what I consider to be one of the most important points, and Michael alluded to it, uh, and, and that was in 1962 when uh, John Tukey published a, a, uh, an article called The Future of Data Analysis. Uh, and in it, he pointed out that the role of data analysis and statistics uh, is discovering things, trying to find things. And he concluded that the best way to find what you weren't expecting is through the use of graphic displays. Uh, the, there, there were a couple of 19th century economists named Farquhar two brothers, uh, they said that trying to get information from a table is like extracting sunlight, sunbeams from a cucumber. You know, it's in there, but you can't see it. And the ability to be able to see things that you hadn't expected was what makes the graphics uh, powerful. And mm -hmm. Tukey being a, a, a world-class hotshot, when he came out in favor of this in 1962, it made it okay for the rest wow. of us. So even by 1962... Or, or maybe especially by 1962, Tukey was the person that everybody looked to. For certain kinds of things, yeah. For certain kinds, right, right, right. So, to say that this is okay, that this is the sort of thing that, that we can be doing. That's right. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so I, I want to talk about historical data visualizations kind of more broadly. Um, I wonder what you would say to folks, maybe, uh, Michael, you can start on this one. I wonder what you would say to folks who say, yeah, historical data visualization is neat. I've seen Menard, I've seen Nightingale, I've seen Jon Snow. They're neat, but there's not much to really learn there because I'm, you know, I have to do mine. I'm coding in JavaScript or I'm, you know, doing something for a mobile phone. And so, you know, they're, they're neat to look at. They're kind of cool, but like there's really nothing to learn there. And I'm curious what you would say to a person who maybe feels that way. John, before, before I answer that, let me, let me yep. just go back to yeah, yeah. Menard for a second. So why was it that Charles Joseph Menard's um, incredible depiction of the, the near destruction of Napoleon's army was so powerful? It was essentially meant as an anti-war statement. He was appalled 
by the tragic loss of nearly all of the French army. And he wanted to point it out in a way that spoke to the hearts and minds of his viewers. Um, E.J. Marie, who was the first one who um, noticed Menard's graph, said it defies the pen of the historian in its brutal eloquence. So that is part of the magic of graphs. Mm. On to the idea of, well, we've got all this software today, and why do we need to, why do we need to worry about it? Well, what we've learned in the most recent history of data visualization is that we really needed a coherent, overarching theory of graphics and the production of graphics. And that came with Lee Wilkinson's Grammar of Graphics. I mm-hmm. was pleased to note that you did, I think, the last podcast interview with mm-hmm. Lee before he tragically died. So this provides an overview, an overarching framework. And most importantly, it creates an easy path between having an idea in your head, oh, I want to make a graph of COVID outbreaks and how it's been moderated by the introduction of vaccines or or other things. Mm -hmm. Having that idea and going to something you can see on a screen or on paper is, I think, the most important contribution of, of modern statistical software. Right. What that leaves out, though, is the question of graphical impact. Tukey famously talked about the idea of interocularity of a graph. The interocular traumatic test is that a graph, a good graph, should hit you between the eyes. You should know its meaning and impact immediately. Mm-hmm. Well, software doesn't help with that. Right. What is important what is important for a graphic designer or a graphic communicator is to have a crystal clear idea of the message they want to convey and think of, okay, I have all these tools. How can I use them to create a graph or graphical display that is impactful, that gets to the hearts and minds of my audience. Mm -hmm. Just like Florence Nightingale was successful in her radial diagram showing the the deaths in the Crimea, she could have used a simple line graph, but that would not have gotten the attention of the members of the British Parliament who were tasked with trying to see what they could do about the disastrous loss of life, not on the battlefield, but to people who got sick from septicemia and died from septicemia. Yeah. We tried to get to this a little bit in Chapter 10 uh, to try to show how you could take a modern question, and in particular the question of, of the movement of, of African Americans from the South to the North. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Du Bois was desperate to show that, and he tried very hard to show all sorts of things. And if he had just borrowed some of the techniques that Minar had developed, uh, he could have come up with something else. And so we made up this story of of Minar meeting with Du Bois in Paris and and over cocktails working out this picture. Right. Uh, You know, there was a song that that Du Bois sang to Minar uh, to get him to come along and help. 
I, I don't know if I could, if I, could, if I play that, would you be able to hear it? Uh, I'm not sure. Why don't we give it a shot? And if not, I'll I'll stick it in the recording okay, later. Why don't you two talk while I try to find the goddamn song? <laughs> okay. Okay. So I was going to ask, I was going to ask, um, the title of the book is History of Data Visualization and Graphic Communication. I'm not really sure what the question is, but like maybe the question is, how do you distinguish between those two things, data visualization and graphic communication? Or, or maybe maybe the question, better question is, why do you distinguish between them in the title? Um, well, one of the things that struck me in, in writing the book was how this entire history or part of it was the rise of visual thinking, the ability of not only scientists or, or economists or statesmen um, like Playfair to think visually, but, but for their audiences to think, to think visually. So graphic communication is the idea of being able to tell your story in the way that will most resonate with the audience. So um, one story, an early story um, of Michael Florent Van Landgren, the, the first statistical graph in 1642, he had the idea for a new way to determine longitude at sea. He wanted to sell it to the king of Spain. He wanted he wanted a patronage appointment. What he did was he gathered all the previous determinations and he wanted to show the king, oh my God, everybody is making extravagant errors. The results are all over the map. He could have presented this stuff in a table, mm -hmm. but only a graph had the power to show exactly what he was trying to show that everybody else was totally wrong. And therefore you should fund me and right. give me a, a life appointment. Right, right. Interesting. So Howard, do you have, uh, I do. Do you have our song? Okay. Yeah, because in the Paris exposition of, of 1900, uh, they had the first talking movies. And so they were able to record uh, this song that, uh, that Du Bois used to lure Minar to help him out in this. Mm. So here's the uh, here's here's what we able to, were able to recover. Mm. As you might have noticed, that tune was co-opted later on for a James Bond movie. <laughs> but, I mean, I think, yeah, I think we all, all data visualization folks try to strive to be like James Bond. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Um, okay, so explain that, explain that again. So that's Menard and Du Bois. Du Bois, that's right. See, Du Bois had data, and mm. the reason he had data was that census started collecting data on African Americans uh, after in, in eighteen. I guess it was starting in eighteen seventy for the first census. Mm -hmm. uh, up until then, they had collected data, but it was as as property, right. you know, like three cows and two slaves and that sort of thing. Uh, but starting in 1870, they were collecting data. And so with data, you'd be able to 
find out things, you can answer things. And Du Bois was wonderful at being able to look at the data and try to tell a story. And, and he chose graphs as a way of doing it. He had 56 different graphs that he displayed in Paris on the ways of, of black folks. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but the big story of the, the idea of the migration, the great migration, uh, was very hard to be told. And Minar, of course, provided uh, the way to do that. Right, right. Right. And and so that's the story that's told in chapter 10. And there's a Yiddish term that goes for that story. It's it's called a bubamitza. <laughs> do you know what that? <laughs> I do. I do. And my, my mom, who's who may be listening to this episode, will really enjoy the fact that that may be a first occurrence of, of Yiddish on the show. But, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking of Yiddish the other day because uh, the Eskimos have 56 words for snow mm-hmm. uh, and Jews have schmuck, schmackle, schmendrick, so on. We've got 86 words for loser. That's right. That's right. <laughs> there must be something relevant There's there. Something, something matched up there, yeah. Um, so I want to ask one last question on the on the development of the book. Maybe this is better as the first question, but I wanted to ask, you, you two have known each other and worked together for a long time. I wanted to ask, you know, how did this book come together and what was the process like? So maybe, Howard, you can start on the history here, the origin story of the book, as it were. Well, Michael and I have been working independently on, uh, on, on the general topic of data display for the better part of 40 years. Uh, and each of us had gone in their own direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it became clear, at least to me, uh, that time was running out and we needed a coherent statement, that the field needed a coherent statement because it had been uh, more than 80 years since there was one. And that was some guy's master's thesis. Mm. Uh, it was really good, but I mean, that, it's Funkhauser. Uh, and by putting everything together, I, I, I always, I felt that we could not only lend some coherence to the field, but also highlight what are the areas that we uh, don't know about. Mm. And by we, I mean, Michael and me. Uh, (laughs) or or don't have time for. And so I I felt that uh, if we got this thing going, it would be a good thing. And he's, you know, Michael's done such beautiful work. I mean, really, uh, the various bits and pieces that he's done over the years uh, are really wonderful. Uh, And and I know he was saving them up for a book that was going to be ready uh, in 50, 60 more years. (laughs) (laughs) And and so uh, you know the it was it was mostly me saying come on let's get this done and him saying well, it's not ready yet we got more to do we got more to learn we got more, you know and this and and uh, so f- we finally did you know get it done uh, and he's still working on the second edition because there's so much more we didn't do right uh, I I'm, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not sure I have the wit or the energy for a second edition but. Uh, I'm glad the first edition is out, and it yeah. really showcases uh, a lot of Michael's uh, contributions over the years. Yeah, that's great. So, so Michael, uh, what for you? I mean, in any book, you have to you have to winnow, uh, sift and winnow down to get it done. So, what are there things in your head? Big topics, big uh, themes, big uh, uh, visualizations that that didn't make it into the first volume. Oh my God! So uh, <laughs> about half of the material that we originally had planned on could not find 
a place in the book or or yeah. went on the cutting room floor of editing. Our our contract called for fifty thousand words. Who knew when you're starting to write a book? Yeah, who knows? What's what's fifty thousand words? Right. Yeah. By the time we were finished, we were up to one hundred and fifty thousand words. Yeah. So we had to fight tooth and nail with our editor at Harvard University Press to compromise at 100,000 words. Wow. Nonetheless, um, there are so many areas that we did not explore. Um, we omit nearly all mention of modern data visualization. Um, Lee Wilkinson, who wrote a wonderful review of the book, privately said to me, oh, you didn't mention grammar of graphics. Mm. And I said, oh, my God, I am so sorry. But we decided to sort of basically cut things off um, around 1975 or right. or, or so. Um, Howard mentioned earlier in our discussion the whole idea of non-European contributions to the history, yeah. the rich history of data visualization and information visualization. We don't have enough material, nor is there a coherent structure for thinking about those really brilliant um, non-European developments. Mm -hmm. But that is something that I think of, oh, maybe someone else will write. <laughs> well, let's hope so. I mean, this is, um, this is a great book, great uh, synthesis of, of the field. I hope everyone will check it out. The History of Data Visualization and Graphic Communication. Michael Howard, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been great chatting with you both. Well, thanks very much for asking us. Thank you so much, John. I've really enjoyed your other podcasts, and I'm looking forward to hearing this one. Thanks. Great. Thanks again. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Michael and Howard, and I hope you'll check out their book. I've linked to it and many other things in the show notes on the website for this episode. If you would like to learn more about data visualization, check out my No Winnow community. Instead of cluttering up your inbox with newsletters and other things, I'm using Winnow to send you two or three text messages each and every week about data visualization strategies, big and small. So head over to winnow.app slash policyviz. That's W-I-N-N-O dot app slash policyviz to learn more. So until next time, this has been the PolicyViz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. A number of people help bring you the PolicyViz Podcast. Music is provided by the NRIs. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs. Design and promotion is created with assistance from Sharon Satsuki-Ramirez. And each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. The PolicyViz Podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. If you'd like to help support the show financially, please visit our PayPal page or our Patreon page at Patreon patreon.com slash policyfist.